Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it to your classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you're joining us today. In today's episode, as well as the following two episodes, which are on the Rwandan genocide, we will be highlighting our partnership with the Virginia Holocaust Museum. Located in downtown Richmond, Virginia, the Virginia Holocaust Museum preserves and documents the Holocaust in exhibits and its archival collections. Through the permanent exhibit, educational programming, and outreach, the museum employs the history of the Holocaust and other genocides to educate and inspire future generations of Virginians to fight prejudice and indifference. I can tell you from personal experience that this museum is incredible and one of the best Holocaust museums in the country. They also just released a new virtual tour of the museum that you can take your students on when you get back to school next year. Today's episode is actually a recording of a webinar that we did with the Virginia Holocaust Museum on how to teach tough topics like the Holocaust in the social studies classroom. On this recording, you will hear from Holocaust education expert, Megan Ferenzi, who runs all of the education initiatives at the Virginia Holocaust Museum and is your go-to contact for anything relating to Holocaust education at the VHM. And you will also hear from Holocaust survivor, Dr. Roger Loria, who is just amazing and such a delight to talk to and his story is incredible. I hope that you enjoy today's episode and if there are any topics that you want us to cover in the upcoming year on the podcast or in our webinar series Scholars Hour, just shoot me an email which is in our show notes. We want to serve you in the best ways that we possibly can and are always looking to connect and hear your ideas. So, without further ado, here are Megan Ferenzi and Dr. Roger Loria with the Virginia Holocaust Museum. So, our first guest tonight is Megan Ferenzi. She is the Director of Education at the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and Megan has diverse experiences in education, museums, outreach, and public programming. And she is really focusing on how teaching the Holocaust and genocide history allows for greater understanding of tolerance and helps individuals recognize the importance of civic engagement and the need for action to prevent future atrocities. So Megan, we are so glad that you are here. If you want to wave and just say hello to everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is, I was telling Sam and everyone else, um, that this is the perfect time for me to talk because again, like Sam said, this is the time of year when you all are talking about the Holocaust and World War II. So, you know, thanks so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. But we are going to start tonight's event. We'll come back to Megan in just a few minutes. We're gonna start tonight's event by interviewing Dr. Roger Loria, who so tech savvy, he got on, troubleshooted all of those issues and is now with us and we can see you, Roger, and uh, we're just so happy that you're here. Um, As we mentioned in our publication of this event, uh, Dr. Loria is a survivor of the Holocaust. And so I'm gonna start by just reading a summary of his story 
because we're gonna interview him tonight and sort of get uh, into some of the more specifics of what he experienced. And as we go along, if you have any questions for Dr. Loria or for Megan, you can feel free to uh, direct message me at about 645, 6.50, uh, we are gonna take questions from the audience. So at that time, I can go back through those questions and ask them anything that you have. So Roger's first brush with danger came three weeks after his birth. In 1940, when Nazis occupied Antwerp, Belgium, his father, Willy, was a Polish national. Having worked in the diamond trade, he hollowed a toothbrush handle and filled it with diamonds before he was arrested and deported to Birkenau. Dina, is that the correct pronunciation, Roger? Right. Dina? Okay. Dina, Roger's mother, searched for some way to save him, but when she learned that Nazis had come for her sister Anne, her brother-in-law Paul, and their four-year-old daughter, Regine, subsequently deporting them to Auschwitz, Dina fled on foot with only a suitcase, Roger, and the toothbrush. They were caught and interned at and I'm not sure the pronunciation of this, but in France, um, when trucks arrived to take inmates to the trains for deportation to the east, she again managed to escape. Similar events recurred numerous times. Following many coincidences and close calls, Roger's courageous mother finally walked with him into Switzerland just before his fourth birthday. A Swiss guard on the frontier lifted the barbed wire for them. They lived in Switzerland until World War II ended and returned to Antwerp, where Dina searched for their family. Dina's gentle friend, Julienne, or Gentile friend, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, Julienne had rescued priceless family pictures and gave them to her. Roger is able to remember living in an attic furnished with only a crate. Dina found work in a home for Jewish children where they lived until 1949, then immigrating to Israel. While living in Israel, Roger served in the army and studied microbiology. In 1964, he continued his studies in America and ultimately settled in Richmond, where he lives with his wife and two daughters. Dr. Luria is a professor and researcher at the Medical College of Virginia. So Roger, thank you so much for being with us tonight. We thank really you. appreciate you. Yeah. I, so, make, I make a caveat on my expertise in the computer. It's limited. <laughs> <laughs> Not as limited as mine. Um, so, um, so Roger, let's just start with from the beginning. You were born just months after Hitler's invasion of Poland in the fall of 1939. Okay. So, let, let what do some you... corrections? Here. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, please okay. do. The in... when the Nazis invaded Poland, mm -hmm. Poland ceased to exist as a state. So everybody who was of Polish origin became stateless. If you are stateless, you are nobody. You can't get an identity card. You cannot get a passport. You cannot access a bank. You can go nowhere. So my father, who was originally from Poland, came to Belgium at the age of seven, uh, was essentially stateless and was in danger to be picked up by the Gestapo. So that's a caveat there. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, yeah. So what do you remember of you and your parents' experience during World War II and the Holocaust? Obviously I was small, but when it started, but I have this natural situation where I see pictures and pictures stays in my head. So that's how I remember things. So, um, we fled in 1942, 
because then we were informed that my aunt and Annika and her husband Paul, my grandfather, my grandfather Joseph, and their daughter were all taken by the Gestapo to be deported to Auschwitz. All were executed upon arriving in to Auschwitz. Any child who came to Auschwitz, which was less than nine years old, was immediately killed because they couldn't work. If they could work, they held them for some time, but otherwise they were immediately killed. And they were taken, and we were informed that the Belgian police and the Gestapo were picking up people in Antwerp by Julien Dujardin, which I will mention in, more, in a minute. She was a, a Belgian citizen, a Belgian lady from the, from the farm who worked in my grandmother's uh, store. And she, as a matter of fact, since I'm already there, she is the one who got the pictures from the apartment, that she went into her apartment and got the picture. I am one of the few survivors who has pictures from his family. Most survivors do not know what their family looked like because they had to flee. There was nothing they could take. She went into apartment, got the pictures and some other things. She would have been shot if they got her. After the war, she gave us back the pictures and some and the candelabra and some other things. I knew her after the war and I owe her a debt which I can never repay. So I, I remember that. My father also, you have a sense of a memory of hunger, starvation, which I had, fear, and obviously cold. That's very much part of the experience. Um, my father, I cannot remember very well because he, I was only two years old when he left, but I have pictures of him. And uh, I, how you say, his absence was very much felt in, during the years of my life. Um, I also remember the Germans, the yelling, the, the dogs which were barking. So one of the dogs stuck, stood on top of me at one time and clearly growling and barking in the camp. So there are certain episodes which sticks with me very clearly. Um, my mother had lost her glasses, which was short-sighted like I am myself now. And she used to hold me and say, Roger, look, are these Germans or not? And I had to tell her, but I was only three years old, less than about three and three and a half. So I had already a job then. Now, the first camp we were was in Annecy, France. And that was a camp, essentially a gathering of people, mothers and children. And I remember very clearly, I have this picture in my head, I was playing in the yard and I had these stones, which I was playing, I was three, three and a half. And I saw the car coming up the mountain, which was very zigzag-like. And that car for some reason really drew my attention. Why I did this day, I don't know. After some time, that car pulled into the yard and two German soldiers came out and I can see them as today with an officer. And they went up the stairs and I can see those today. And I stood there, didn't go after them. 
they went into the kitchen where the women were working and the two, my mother, to the two soldiers closed the doors in the front. And when they did that, she jumped to the back door and went around the building and grabbed me when I was standing there and waiting. And into the woods, we run. We were the only one of that camp to escape that. Nobody, all of the people taken by guard to the gas chambers after that. So clearly that memory is very vivid with me. And uh, there's some other details where we had to notify people. We were in an attic in the town of Annecy and there was a woman who had a child in the trucks we were passing to the gas chamber. And we had to make sure she didn't scream. And I remember her very loud, clearly. And if she screamed, we would have been toast. So they had to make sure she didn't make a sound. So after that, we were taken and we got to taken again, captured again. And I tell the story that I'm married to a Richmond girl for 42 years now. And she tells everybody when they ask about my accent that is from Alabama and they don't buy it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is it's very hard to hide when you are not a native. I go to France in Paris and I speak French fluently. I'm from Belgium. And they say to me, oh, you're from Belgium. And I say, how do you know? They say, you're too polite. So clearly you cannot hide very well. It's, it's just as soon as you open your mouth, they know. I have a colleague who just passed away Sammy, who, who was the last survivor of the, of the ship, of the, that, the Exodus ship. He was the last survivor crewman. And his mother was from Poland and they hid in France. And they, made, they told everybody that she was deaf and mute. So she wouldn't speak and they would not know. So you have to know that it's just no way you can hide in that situation. Then we were taken again, caught again, and shipped to a prison in the south of France called River Salkes. This was a huge prison with a lot of people and uh, 16 different nationalities, from a lot from the Franco regime. And they were, the situation there was extremely harsh, uh, no hygiene, they kept us on 800 calories a day. Now, if you know, you need to survive. I'm a, in a medical school. I teach medical students. You need to survive about 2,400 calories a day. They gave us 800 calories and those 800 was also lousy food. It's a form of torture by starvation. So everybody was sick or something. So clearly this was not easy. The camp was closed because they were afraid that the American forces were coming to the Mediterranean. This is on the shore of the Mediterranean area. So they closed the camp and we were shipped to another place. From there, my mother, as she told, had a toothbrush with diamonds in it. And she used those diamonds to pay a smuggler to walk us through the nights to Switzerland. 
I remember clearly the the guy was walking in front. He had a bicycle, and there was another baby younger than me on the rack. And I had to walk near him. And if he yelled, I had to put a sugar cube in his mouth so he wouldn't scream. We walked to the nights and we made it to the border. The border was very treacherous, treacherous. We had to crawl literally because they, they had they made trenches with broken, with trunks which you would slip on and break your neck. And I remember that Swiss guard lifting the barbed wire and let us in. And we were very lucky because that didn't happen many times. Many times they send people back. And after that, I had the memory for the first time, we were in a Swiss station and they gave us tea. And I was three and a half years old. And this is the first time I had tea and he had it on his back and they were pouring the tea. And after that, I was out. So clearly um, a lot of viv visible memory. I will say one more thing before you go to the next question. When you are a refugee, and we were refugees in Switzerland and in any country, you cannot work. You're limited to one place. And when the war ends, you have to go back to your country of origin. You cannot choose where you go. You have to go from where you came, which in our case was Belgium. So clearly, it is very difficult to be a refugee in any place. It's like house arrest in the true sense of the word. And you know, I'll end up on that part here. Uh, there's just so much that I want to unpack there. And I'm sure that we'll have some specific questions from our audience too about everything that you said. But I think one of the things that really struck me that you just said, Roger, was just about all of the ways that you and your mother really just exhibited such resourcefulness, you know, and just were able, yeah, go ahead. I owe it to my mother. Mm, she yeah. brought me into the world and she saved me. Mm. There is no question about it. She deserves all the credit. Mm. Do you know anything about your father's experience after uh, he was yes. captured? Yes, my father went to France opening hoping that what was called in France Libre, which meant a free France, would be allowed, would be take, would allow, he would be able to work there. He did not know because in those days, the communications were very poor. Remember, no television, barely phoned service. If you needed news, you went into the movie house to see a newsreel. So any, if you controlled information, you could control what people knew. So he went to France Libre, hoping that um, he would find work there. And obviously the Gestapo got him there. And um, he was shipped from uh, there to, to Auschwitz, worked in the mines. They, a lot of Jews were slaves in the mines. That's more than 70,000 Jewish slaves in the mines. And he died in the starvation marches at the end of the war from Birkenau, Auschwitz area. We, we got a card from the Red Cross six months before the end of the war. So we knew he was still alive, but he didn't make the end of it. From 
to place France Libre. There were 5,036 Jews who fled there from Belgium. 317 survived. My mother and I are two of the 317. That's the only one who made it. Wow, that is, I mean, it's just so horrific. And <laughs> I kind of want to interject in my questions here just to ask you, I mean, how how do you sort of reconcile all of that happening and being able to come here, you know, on a, on a Zoom meeting and share all of that with us? I mean, did that happen? When did you start your, your process of sort of sharing I, your I, story? I didn't speak for 50 years. When they start burning the churches, killing the Vietnamese and gay people, mm -hmm. and I saw what was happening. That's when I start talking. I said, I need to speak. I know what it is. I've been there. And that's when I started speaking. Because you should not stay quiet. When you see that hate, that terrible cruelty, you need to speak up. It took me 50 years. And I think now this technology is so amazing. I mean, obviously for being able to talk with you safely during this pandemic and being able to share your story, but it's also really incredible to have your story recorded over and over again so that it can be shared, you know, multiple times. My great agent, Megan Forenzi will help in that. <laughs> she is an agent. <laughs> she she yeah. is the best connection for, for anyone um, looking to study this topic and looking to connect with you. So, I mean, I'll just interject right now and I'm sure Megan will say this later. If anyone is interested in having Roger talk or zoom into your classes, um, Megan and Roger can connect with you yeah. about that. I usually have a PowerPoint. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We're kind of asking him to go off of everything yeah. a little bit tonight. <laughs> and we appreciate you working with us for that, yeah. Roger. Yeah. Um, so what was life like for you and your mother after the war in Belgium and then in eventually Israel? Terrible. You came to Belgium back and you found out that there was nothing left. I am the only survivor for my family's, for my father's side. More than 60 to 70 people were all killed in the war. My father had two sisters with families, two brothers with families. There's nobody there. I was, and by that time I was five and a half, and we came to Belgium, and essentially it was like a desert you found there. The other thing is her home had been destroyed either by bombing or by plundering, looting, and essentially my mother did not have official knowledge, acknowledgement of my father's death. Ladies, listen to me on this. She could not access her own money in the bank because she had no signature of her husband. Remember that. You need your rights. So we were literally on the street. We had nothing. She couldn't get to her own money. And when she tried to find work, they were very clear. Madame de Say, we do not give work to Jews here. It was after the war. So clearly, uh, she was very careful 
and to not try to burden people. We got some help here and there, but it was rather difficult. And finally, she got a position in the Jewish orphanage. There was a Jewish orphanage in Antwerp with 100 children, all orphans. And she got a position as a matron of a group of girls. And I had to go with the boys. And um, because I was the only one who really had the mother, I was not to, supposed to have any preferential treatment. So I was not supposed to talk to her only on her days off once in two weeks. And I understood that because I was the one who had the mother. So I shouldn't, you know, complain. The orphanage st uh, was taken to Israel in, after three years. From, I was there from 46 to 49. And Israel made an effort to take all these orphan children to Israel. We were uh, shipped through the Mediterranean to Israel. And I want to make a point here, because of the British embargo, we had to wait a long time in, in Marseille, which is the port on the Mediterranean, uh, to get uh, the, the, the ship. And the ships that we were getting were converted ships from the Hudson River for the med sailing in the Mediterranean. And in the Mediterranean, we were radioed <clears throat> to pick up 600 Jewish people expelled from Libya. All the Arab countries expelled their Jewish citizens from their country because of the formation of the State of Israel. Just like Spain did the expansion, expansion, their expulsion, they did the same thing. Those 600 Jews that we put on the ship, Galila was called, had no idea where they were being plucked from. Just total amazing. And, and they all were taken to Israel and settled. There are no refugee camps in Israel from Jewish people or any others. <clears throat> so <clears throat> um, clearly, and the amazing thing, when they, we came to Haifa, they had a band playing for us. They sang the Hatikva, which means hope, which is the national anthem of Israel. And it was the first time that you felt welcome. And uh, I can say that Israel then was a very pioneer state. They had tremendous rationing because of the influx of people. There were not enough food. One egg per child per week. No, no meat, no, I mean, you could get some chicken, hundred, like less than half a pound a week for a child only. No, you never had, I never had a real steak till I came to the United States in 64. So it was, was quite uh, different, it was a truly pioneer society. Um, I was, when you are in Israel, you are drafted to the military. And after high school, I was 18 years old, left, right, you go into the military and you do what you have to do. I was sent to a tank battalion. I was 19 years old by the time, 18, 19, had 820 men under administrative command. I was in the capacity of an adjutant of a tank battalion, 820 men under administrative command. I wasn't shaving yet, but that's how it goes. 
uh, and in 64, I came to this country. Yeah, so you came to our country in the United States in 64. There's a lot going on here at the time, too, um, and concerning civil rights and human rights as well. Um, so what was your experience like after moving to the United States? I'm personally curious. I, I know we know a little bit of background of what drew you to the United States, but what drew you to Virginia in particular? Uh, and, yeah. and then... I'll you know, kind you. of was, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came as a Rockefeller student and I was first in SUNY at the state of New York in Buffalo, New York. And uh, I took the Rockefeller Foundation, I got the fellowship. I was already teaching, at, uh, in, you know, teaching, uh, in, how you say, uh, intern then because I had a BS and I had practice in the hospital, which most people did not have here. So, um, it was in Israel by the time you could not, it was very difficult to get a doctor degree or make advanced studies. There were only 20 slots for physician in Jerusalem for the entire country. So most people had to go out to, to be able to continue their education. And that's essentially what I did. Um, it was not easy. I landed in a snowstorm in Buffalo, New York in a snowstorm from Israel. I didn't know if that plane would land, I'll tell you the truth, <laughs> but it did. Um, I later uh, came, to, I came to Boston University and to finish my degree, I studied with Dr. Sidney Kivrick, who ran the laboratory for Dr. Enders, who got the Nobel Prize for polio, uh, ability to grow polio in tissue culture. Dr. Kibrick was the first field officer in the East Coast to vaccinate for polio virus. So I know about vaccinations. <laughs> and uh, it, I was in Boston and we had developed a technique about showing some viruses can trigger diabetes. And we had written a grant and Nixon decided that he did not want to allocate the monies that the government, that the Congress had allocated for funding. He decided he didn't have to spend it. And since I was on the fellowship, I had to find a job. And that's how I ended up in Richmond. Now, four months after that, the Supreme Court ruled against Nixon and the grant was funded. But I was already here and I was never going to go back. So Dr. Kibrick and I worked it out and we published the data the first time showing that the virus can, in human virus can destroy the pancreas in genetically predisposed animals. So that was how I ended up here. Uh, in terms of discrimination in Richmond, I was rather surprised. I wasn't familiar with the situation with the black community at the time was a, you know, I was totally ignorant. And um, my car was rolled over several times, one time at least, and had swastikas over it. And I didn't believe that could happen, but it did. That was in the West End, here on West End Avenue. And uh, 
I am happy for the consequences I did. I worked for 42 years at MCB, passed to my classes more than 6,000 physicians. And I won't talk about in addition PhDs, master's degrees, nurses, dentists, in all in addition. So I put two cents in the pot. And after 42 years, I retired. I'm now retired and pleased to have done it in time, not to have to face this. So clearly, I feel I've made my contribution. Mm. When did when did that happen? When someone spray painted swastikas on your car? We talking some time ago. Mm. Um, I would say in the late seventies or early eighties. That still that still feels very very recent. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry that that happened. That's uh, awful. Essentially. We are the canary in the mine, Jewish people. They will discriminate against us first. Then you get all the other discrimination, Irish, black, Muslims, Asian, everybody gets a piece of the, this, the hate, but they go after everyone. And mm -hmm. we need to be aware of that. It's not limited to one, one group. Absolutely. And especially with what happened uh, yesterday in Atlanta, um, obviously, you know, that cycle of hate just, you know, it doesn't stop. But I think that it's so valuable to be able to have people like you, Dr. Loria, to share your stories and to educate all of us on what you experienced. So what do you hope teachers and students learn when studying the Holocaust? I hope that they learn to speak out when they see bigotry and injustice. I hope they learn the contribution of immigrants to the society. I came as a foreign student. I taught a large number of physicians and so on. So clearly we put some, you know, we do make a contribution. I hope they learn that bullying and bigotry unchecked leads to chaos and damage to an entire society, not just to one group. And everyone should be aware of it. I hope that they learn that change is necessary and that need to be accepted. And if someone tells them that the Holocaust was a hoax, I hope that they shout loudly that it is not so. They saw a survivor. Mm -hmm. uh, that gave me chills a little bit just listening to you say that. Um, that was so powerful. Thank you, Dr. Laurie, for sharing your story. And again, anyone who's listening, if you have questions for Dr. Laurie, and I know um, we've had a couple of people already direct message me, please feel free to um, message me on the chat and we'll ask them in just a few minutes. We are going to extend our time just by 15 minutes, uh, everyone, just because of those tech issues. And I didn't want us to cut down on Dr. Laurie's time with us. And I want to make sure we get to those questions at the end. But also we are really excited to have Megan Frenzy here as well. Um, and Megan, as I mentioned earlier, is the education director at the Virginia Holocaust Museum. And just after listening to uh, Roger's story, I mean, 
I'm just impacted all over again by how difficult uh, the Holocaust can be to discuss in the classroom. I mean, it's both extremely complex in terms of the histories that people experienced in terms of it, but it's also got this huge emotional weight. So how can educators teach this topic appropriately for different age groups? Sure. So hi, everybody. And if at any point you do have a question, you can send that to Sam. Happy to answer them. Um, if for some reason you don't want to ask a question or you think of something later, please send me where it's on our website, vaholocaust.org. Um, you know, I'm happy to help in any way or, or support your instruction. So I want to say that. Um, but also I've I've tried to make, I've made some notes um, to try and answer these questions concisely, um, just so that I'm very passionate about this topic, so I'm not rambling to you. <laughs> uh, so as, you know, from listening to Dr. Loria and watching the news, and, and it's almost daily now, um, this is a difficult topic to talk about, but it's such an important one, because as recent events have shown us, um, as Sam said, just as, uh, you know, yesterday, in Atlanta, um, anti-Semitism, racism, hatred, bigotry, that did not end with the Holocaust. Just because, you know, the war is over, uh, you know, the Holocaust is over, it does not mean that these things end. As Roger told you, when he and his mother went back to Belgium um, to, to have her look for a job, and they said, we do not employ Jews here. Um, many survivors, when they went back home, um, they were met with violence um, and anti-Semitism. So, it's important to remember just because a historical event ends, or even when the, you know, when we think about things like the civil rights movement or you know, certain legislation is signed, it does not change people's hearts and minds. Um, that's our job. <laughs> Mine at the museum, yours as a teacher, um, you know, as parents, as adults, um, you know, to try and give um, you know, to teach children um, about the dangers of hatred unchecked. So um, yeah, I mean, this is such an important topic. Um, and due to the subject matter, we actually say that it's most appropriate to begin teaching the Holocaust in grade six. Um, and that's because students are able to place the events of the Holocaust within the context of World War II history. So if students are unable um, to place these in the history around it, um, then it's probably not the best time for them to learn about it. Um, because the Holocaust, as we all know, it didn't have to happen and it didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, elementary school, okay, I would not recommend teaching the Holocaust specifically in elementary school. However, um, elementary school can be a, a good place to start talking about diversity, right? People that are different than us, other cultures, other religions, and also the dangers of bias. Um, so again, I, I wouldn't talk specifically about the Holocaust, but the lessons and the themes that can come from it, um, you know, you can definitely try and, and talk about in the elementary school classroom. Um, you also want to make sure that whatever resources you're choosing are historically accurate. That is so important um, and also appropriate to use for the teaching of this history. And you may be overwhelmed um, because there are so many resources on the Holocaust, um, but you need to be mindful that just because a book has been published or um, there's a movie about a particular topic or story does not mean that it's always historically accurate. Case in point, the book, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, okay? Not a resource, 
um, that I would recommend for historical accuracy when talking about the Holocaust. Um, again, fiction and films are usually created for entertainment purposes. Um, so in order to help you choose the best resources for your students, first you need to establish a rationale for your lesson, okay? Simply put, why you're teaching, um, you know, what makes that important? What do you want students to learn from this lesson? And once you have established that, you can make sure you're focused on choosing resources that support that rationale. It's really, I even do this, it's really helpful for me when I, you know, think about programming I wanna do or any type of, um, you know, workshop or even lesson plan that I put on our website. Um, why am I doing what I'm doing? What do I want people to get from this? And then I'm able to be really choosy about the resources that I'm using. You should also always be following the guidelines for teaching about the Holocaust, um, which were created by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC. So these are on their website. I follow these all the time. Most Holocaust educators or all Holocaust educators in the United States follow these as well. These are a great guideline um, for you know, do's and don'ts. Um, I'm only gonna share a couple with you just because I know we're short on time. You can look at the rest again on their website. So you know, where, do you, where do you start with this? Um, so one of the guidelines, it, it tells you to define the term Holocaust. This provides a foundation for your students. So they're able to identify what the Holocaust was exactly and who it affected. Um, today, um, I was actually just on like a workshop on Zoom uh, with other Holocaust educators earlier this morning. And, you know, we often want to know like, you know, what, what are the gaps in students' knowledge coming in? And an educator made a really good point, um, which I didn't even think about really is what information are they coming in with? Because so much is um, you know, readily shared on the internet, right? Through social media, through memes. Um, you know, so it's really important to, to know like what information they are coming in with about the Holocaust because there is so much misinformation. When you type in the word Holocaust to Google, you're gonna get millions of different um, hits and different websites. And many of those within that search are Holocaust denial and distortion websites. So you need to be aware of, again, what information they're coming in with, start with the basics, what was the Holocaust, what is it specifically, and what groups did it affect? And then that way everyone's on the same page. Um, and this definition is actually, there are a couple of definitions um, I recommend using the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, their definition, as well as Yad Vashem and Israel's Holocaust Museum, their definition as well. Um, they're basically the same thing. They might, they might differ in a couple of places. One isn't, you know, wrong, you know, so it's, it, it just depends. So check those out, use those when you're talking about the Holocaust to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, something else that you want to make sure that you're doing is is avoiding simple answers to complex questions. So like all history, the Holocaust is very complex. Um, the Holocaust affected many different groups of people and not everyone had the same experience. When we read fiction books or watch movies about the Holocaust, they tend to focus on one experience and make us think that all victims had the same experience. So that maybe everyone was in a concentration camp 
or everyone wore the striped uniform, everyone had their head shaved, or even that everyone who was targeted was Jewish. And that's simply not the case. There was a wide range of experiences and each person that was targeted by the Nazis is considered a victim. We need to make sure that our instruction is matching that complexity of the history. Um, I also want you to remember that Again, you know your students the best, right? Um, and their maturity level. So any resources um, you know, th that even I recommend, they're not one size fits all, right? So something that you would use in maybe seventh grade, you wouldn't use in you know, sixth grade or 12th grade. So it's really important that I would, you know, by this point we're in, in the spring. So you, you know, you know your students and maybe their maturity levels um, on certain things. Uh, so again, it's important to remember things aren't one, one size fits all. And if you ever have a question about a resource, um, please feel free to contact myself or even our director of collections. Um, you know, we'd be happy to help you. Oh, Megan, so much good information. Um, and one of the things that sort of stood out to me was, you know, mentioning the boy in the striped pajamas and, you know, how that is maybe not the best resource that we should be leaning on in our classroom. And I, I had actually interviewed you for something separate that from BCSS one time with my English teacher uh, partner, and we do lit circles, Holocaust lit circles um, in her class while we're studying World War II and the Holocaust. And, you know, just to diversify our book list, the boy in the striped pajamas was on there. So we did have some kids reading that. And I remember when we were in that interview, you know, it really made us reflect on that, you know, and that was a point where I think Megan really called us in to really reflect on whether or not this book was an accurate portrayal of a, uh, of a victim's experience and whether or not it was actually appropriate for our classroom. And, you know, I think all of us go through that all the time. You know, we have these things that we like to use in our classrooms, but upon reflection, you know, maybe it's not the best choice. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that you think teachers um, have been making when teaching the Holocaust and how can we avoid them? So I want to start off by saying that teachers, you know, have the best intentions. And I don't want you to think that I'm getting up here on my soapbox trying to preach to you all. This is just from my own experience and research and working with other educators. Um, so again, Teachers always have the best of intentions, um, but maybe they don't have access to certain resources or workshops that focus on different approaches you can take when teaching the Holocaust. Um, so, so yes, so you have the best of intentions, um, but some mistakes or some, what we would call don'ts, um, things that you should avoid doing in your classroom, um, you know, not knowing the history. So as the teacher, you need to know and understand the history and its complexities. And then that way you're able to, you know, answer your students' questions, maybe not all the time, because no one knows everything, um, but you feel confident in your knowledge on the topic. Um, you also need to recognize your own bias, right? And your own knowledge base, okay? So where are you getting your information about the Holocaust from, right? Is it from watching Schindler's List? Is it from reading a book by a historian? Um, you know, those are all 
you know, find resources, but one, you know, is made for entertainment purposes and one is made for, um, you know, historical research purposes. Um, so again, make sure that you understand and know this history. And if you need recommendations for resources, feel free to reach out. Um, we also do, and I'll talk about this at the end with um, resources that we offer. Um, you know, we have teacher workshops that will talk about the history of the Holocaust that will go in depth into it. And also how, you know, once you know this history, how do you talk about in the classroom? Like what are some approaches that you can use? Um, something that you should avoid as well as using the shock and awe approach, um, meaning that you are showing students maybe a graphic film clip or a graphic photo. So uh, for example, a pile of dead bodies at a camp. Um, you want to avoid this. And let me explain this. Um, this means um, that you're avoiding this because you know your students best, right? And maybe the first thing that they, when they look at this photo, they're just gonna see a pile of naked bodies in this photo. And that's all they're gonna fixate on, okay? Um, However, I'm not saying do not use this photo um, that you might have. If it fits in, again, go back to your rationale. If it fits into your rationale and what you're doing, um, you know, that, and you think your students are mature enough to, to handle um, examining a photo like this and it fits into your instruction, you know, and you think it supports it, then, you know, maybe that's something you should use. Um, you also need to be again, providing a historical context for students when you're using a photo like this. Um, because in just showing students a photo, you know, as teachers, I've heard so many times they say to me, you know, I want students to feel this history. I want students to really feel and empathize with the victims of this time, which is so, it's, it's so important, right? But showing a photo of a pile of bodies um, won't help you accomplish that. It actually will do the opposite. Um, you know, you are actually further dehumanizing the victims without providing any historical context um, for that photo. The, the people in that photo, they're not thought of as human anymore, right? We do not know their names, where they're from, what type of person they were, etc. cetera. Um, so going along those lines as well, you want to make sure um, that you are not asking students to put themselves in someone else's shoes or re or you yourself in your classroom are recreating the events of the Holocaust, what we would call a simulation. Okay. Um, so this can include, I'll give you an example of having students cram into a corner of your classroom, trying to replicate what it was like for victims to be crowded into a box car. Um, because like the shock and awe approach, doing this will actually do the opposite of what you set out to do in the first place um, because you can never recreate the conditions of the Holocaust. And in trying to do so, you give students um, the false sense that they know what it was like to experience terror and horror. Um, and also it trivializes the experiences um, of the victims of this time. And it's something, you know, Whatever I do at the museum and whatever teachers do in their teaching, they should always be honoring um, the experiences of, of the victims of this time. So 
what can you do um, to get students to empathize with the victims? Um, you can use primary sources. And so those are stories of the survivors, whether it's in a, in a book that you're reading about them, it's through their uh, testimony, their uh, taped history, the, their taped uh, interview. So we actually do that at the museum and we have a YouTube page with local survivors. Um, they found their way to, to Virginia and we, we tape them talking about their experience during the Holocaust. So you can show you know, clips of those in your classroom. You want to make sure though, again, whatever clip you show is relating to what you're talking about, okay? And that it's also appropriate um, for your students because these, um, these testimonies were not made with the specific um, idea that they would be shown to sixth grade students. So they, they may, I mean, they may not, they may talk about sexual assault. Um, they may talk about other um, horrific things that happened to them. So you need to make sure again, like with whatever resources you're using for any topic you teach that you're previewing this. And again, it fits into your rationale. And Sorry, I'll just interject really quick. I was just going to say that I did a project last um, spring with uh with the oral histories uh, that you all have. And I reached out to Megan and uh, the Virginia Holocaust Museum's director of collections, Tim, and I forget his last name, and Megan. Did. Yeah. And y'all got back to me within, I mean, it was within 24 hours. And I had said, are there any of these that I need to exclude from my seventh graders? Because they might, you know, be sharing stories of sexual assault or the trauma is just maybe at a level that is a bit too intense for my seventh graders. And they, Megan and her team have such an extensive knowledge of these resources. So, you know, just reach out to them. It's, and I'm sure that the, um, the Holocaust museum in DC has similar, you know, sort of people working for them that can do the same thing. So I would just suggest reach out to, to them. I mean, please, that's why, that's why we, we're here. We're here to help you. Um, and then one last thing, and then um, I think Sam wanted to ask me about some resources. And I know you all probably want to ask Roger questions. So I promise I won't keep rambling on to you. Um, so the last thing that I want to touch on is, you know, distorting the history of the Holocaust. And this actually goes along with denial. Um, denial is saying like, the Holocaust never happened. Happened. Distortion is saying, well, it happened, but it wasn't this bad, or this number is incorrect, or, you know, this, this didn't happen this way, that that's distortion. And however we present this history in the classroom, this is why it's so important to have that accurate historical knowledge yourself. You want to make sure you're not portraying the Holocaust as a good versus evil scenario. Um, as I said earlier, Holocaust history is very complex and we need to present it as such. That means that when you are examining the Holocaust in your classroom, that you're focusing on the victims, but you're also focusing on the perpetrators, the collaborators, the rescuers, bystanders, and you need to make sure you're portraying them all as human beings. They're all human, they're all capable of making choices. When we label people as monsters or evil, right? And it may sound strange, um, but we are taking away their humanity in a way and making it seem like this is what they were destined to do, right? No, they're human beings like we are and they had a choice. Um, 
they always had a choice. So that's important that we make sure that we are examining that. Um, and also that one person might not fit into one category, right? Throughout the Holocaust, throughout the entire war, they may be in several different categories. Um, that's why it's important to, to personalize this history, to talk about individual experiences, so important. Um, and we need to remember, as I said earlier, the Holocaust was not inevitable, okay? It happened because human beings made certain choices. Um, it's also important to note that we need to have conversations about the motivations, the pressures that were present in society that influenced someone's decision-making, okay? Can't, again, like, I don't wanna stand up on my soapbox to you preaching. You can't be preaching to your students about, um, you know, being an upstander, right? Um, because those choices are so difficult. Okay, so, so difficult. And as adults, we don't, we don't even make the right decisions. Um, but again, it's also important when you are talking about people like rescuers, that we try not to romanticize this, that, you know, they're like superheroes, because again, they are like the perpetrators, they are human beings, and they were capable of making choices, just as your students are. And it really, I think, gives the sense, the students a sense of like that agency, to try and make change and to, to make those decisions that we would want them to make. Yeah, just like you said, centralizing the humanity and the agency of everyone involved, you know, both for good and for bad, I think is just a really good way to center yourself when talking about these really hard things. And so that sort of brings us to the resources that the Virginia Holocaust Museum has. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to the Virginia Holocaust Museum, but it is incredible. Uh, my students love it, and which is a strange word I suppose to use, but they just, they relish the experience and the tour guides there are just, so dynamic and able to really engage them. So Megan, if you could just talk about some of the resources that you all have at the museum and maybe how you've adapted in pandemic times too. Sure, so we offer teacher workshops and training throughout the year. Um, our next teacher workshop and throughout the pandemic into the fall and who knows what spring will hold, um, those are all on Zoom. So, you know, you don't, you don't have to be in Richmond. You don't have to be in Virginia. You can be from anywhere. Um, please, you know, sign up. Um, tours of the, we do tours of the exhibits. Um, currently we have suspended that group tours. However, um, we do have a sign up, um, which is available online and we're allowing, I think, don't quote me on this, 10 people every hour. So you have to go online and you'd have to choose a time and then um, it's timed entry into the exhibits. Um, we also have a speakers bureau, which Roger is a part of, um, and those in, that includes Holocaust survivors as well as uh, survivors of other genocides, so uh, Cambodian genocide um, and genocide, and they all speak via Zoom. Um, so that's an excellent opportunity um, to, to have, you know, history, um, you know, people that witnessed a, a certain part of history or experienced it to share, you know, you know, what they went through with students. It's, it's so impactful. Um, we have resources online such as lesson plans. I have reading recommendations for students and educators. And we also have an archive and a research library. Uh, we have 
we are digitizing our collections. It's a very tedious process, but we do have what we call record groups um, on our website if you go to collections and you can search through. So whatever Roger has donated, um, you know, photographs, documents, any artifacts, you can search his name and you can find out about his family, um, any, uh, you know, any part of our collection that is associated with him. You can find out about that. You can see photos of him when he was younger um, and whatever is not online is available in our collection. Um, and we are taking research, uh, research requests by appointment. So um, usually I think it's just like one person in the library. You'll let our director of collections know what you are looking for or need and he can pull it and you can, you can take a look at it. Uh, there. Um, and I mean, really for the past year, we've been working nonstop to try and get everything that we have available online for you and there's more coming. Um, I am currently working on um, with a colleague of mine on full tour of the museum. Uh, I don't know <laughs> when exactly that will be available um, because it's taking a little longer than I thought. However, that will be a resource that is available for you and your students. Um, we also, like I said earlier, we have a YouTube channel uh, with our survivor testimony. So, you know, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, because we'll not only give you information about upcoming programs and events, but we also talk about the history and share items from our collection as well. Um, one of the do's for Holocaust education is, again, making sure that whatever information you're using is historically accurate. And websites can be static, right? They're more different. They're more difficult to change. So, following places like the Auschwitz Memorial on Twitter, that's a great way to find out new information. Following places like the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum or ourselves um, to learn about, uh, you know, current like groundbreaking new research. I mean, we're finding more and more. Um, out about the Holocaust every single day. So to keep up with us, definitely follow our social media channels um, and other Holocaust organizations as well that have them. Our website is vaholocaust.org. Um, and you know, if there is a certain resource that you're looking for, we may have it and it just may not be on the website. Uh, so please make sure that you contact myself or just the museum in general. So, um, you know, I wanna say thank you so much for having me here today. And um, hopefully I gave you some food for thought, um, some things to think about. And again, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, and I think we do have a couple of questions for you. And there's actually so many questions in the chat. I'm going to try to um, go through them. I, I don't, I know we're already 11 minutes over time. If you do need to go, um, and we appreciate you staying with us a little bit longer even now, um, I promise to uh, share this recording with you afterwards and also to, we will be disseminating the resources that Megan has just shared with us um, to everyone. So, but I do, especially while we have Roger on, Roger, are you okay to stay for a few more minutes? Sure. Okay, Excellent. Um, and Megan, there are a couple of questions for you too. I don't know if you have time to stay for a few more minutes. No, that's fine. If you, my husband's downstairs with our children, so I need to try and be quiet. So, okay. Okay. 
<laughs> well, it's okay if they're loud. Honestly, my cat's been, you know, s- stealing a lot of spotlight during this whole thing. So, and my dog's going to whine. So, uh, no, it's all fine. Um, but our first question for Roger, and we may not get to all the questions, but we'll copy the chat as well. And if there are any other questions, we can email Roger and have him. Um, and if Roger, if you're able to follow up at a certain time with those, maybe that would be a good way to get all of our answers in if we can. Um, but our first question, Roger, is have you been back to the camps since no. liberation? No. No. Okay. I do not go back. I don't see movies. I just don't do that. I cannot do that. Uh, to Megan's point, uh, which is important, you cannot install or translate the fear of life that one had, and you don't want to. You do not want to do that. So clearly you cannot do that and you want you don't want to do that. My daughters, I have two daughters. We did not talk to them till they were 10 years old, the youngest one, because we waited to see that they could handle it. My youngest is now uh, an advocate for people with disability, does give presentations now, but she's a young lady now. So clearly you don't want to do that. And Roger, uh, we also have a question centering on uh, if you have had any sort of thoughts about connecting your experience with the current state of sort of bigotry and racism in the United States today. Absolutely. I could predict it before it started. You could see it. And I did. You can look at my Facebook two years ago and you can see when you have a person, any place, who is a demagogue and incite violence in that position, you're going to see what we see now. There's absolutely no question. And that was how they worked. Demagogues are skillful people to do that. And he succeeded in doing that. And just sort of a, a factual question. Well, we're curious as to what happened to your mother. Did she stay in Israel? Mother, mother and I were lived in Israel for some years. Um, after I went to the army in '62, she returned to Belgium. She never remarried. Uh, she had it very difficult. A woman alone was very difficult for her. And she went back to Belgium when she had friends from school. And she lived in Belgium. She came here. She took care of her daughters when they were born. And she passed away many years ago when she was 84 years of age. But uh, she, she survived the war and she was, she was, I owe her a lot. I don't know, you, the women in this group may not know this, but in the 40s and 50s, not 50s, but late 40s. My mother was a beautiful woman and she had some offers of marriage and they would tell her, send the boy away. And that was not unusual in those days. And she refused to send me away. So it was double or triple. And I was lucky that she didn't do that. Your mother sounds just like an incredible woman. Um, 
and I'm sure she's very proud of you and everything you've accomplished in your life. But um, Megan, this question I think would be helpful for you to answer. As educators, how can we support our students that are Jewish and have Holocaust survivors and victims within their families? Oh, you're muted. Story of my my life. (laughs) Um, So that's a really great question. And I think this also addresses like the trauma aspect of talking about something like the Holocaust. I mean, whenever you're talking about a difficult topic or something that is uncomfortable to talk about, or, um, you know, it's a dark history, um, it's important to be aware of, you know, who you're talking to. And I think, um, you know, if you are talking about the Holocaust, it's important, you know, to give students a heads up maybe about what you're talking about that day. Um, So for example, if, you know, you do have students that are Jewish in the classroom, you know, to let them know like, hey, we're gonna be talking about this. And also to give students the option of opting out of something um, and, or reflecting um, like some silent reflection on certain things, I think is really important to be able to like help process this. Um, You know, I think the best way and Roger might be able to answer this um, as well is, you know, if you know somebody who is a part of a a group or identifies as a member of a group that is discriminated against. So, um, you know, whether it's, people that are Jewish or are black or um, gay, I think it's really important that they know that you're an ally for them. And that means like that you are, um, you know, standing up for them um, and for them to actually see that. Um, It's like one thing to like share things on, you know, it's important to share things on like Facebook or social media about certain things. But I think it's also important that they know that like you are speaking out for them. Um, That's, that's so, so important. Um, And, you know, just as like a side note too, um, when we, you know, when we talk about like allies, um, you know, people within like, uh, minority groups. So when we look at during World War II, we had black soldiers, right, over fighting the war and liberating concentration camps. Um, when in their own country, they're, they're considered second class citizens. And a lot of those men um, that did witness, um, you know, the horror at concentration camps, um, you know, ended up being like integral in in the civil rights movement. Um, someone that you should definitely check out is a man named Leon Bass. He passed away, I believe three years ago. He has a testimony on ushmm.org. Um, that's the Holocaust Museum in DC. His name is again, Leon Bass, B-A-S-S. And um, he was, he talks about the liberation of camps, what he saw. And then when he came back, you know, what he did. He's such a powerful speaker. And I think that could be, you know, something really great for him. Roger. Yeah. I, when I was in Boston, I took care into my lab to bring for the summer Armenian students. And the Armenian genocide is not talked much about. As a matter of fact, one of the Armenian students 
Charlie Bichajin came with, with me to Richmond when I came here. So clearly it is important to recognize that we were not alone. A lot of other groups were targeted and had that. And I made this special point to, you know, to enroll Armenian students into my lab in Boston because of that. So clearly it's very important to do that. Any minority. Um, Roger, another question for you. Based on just everything that you and your family went through, do you hold any particular group responsible for the Holocaust or any, you know, any group in terms of, I suppose, uh, you know, in terms of government leaders or uh, soldiers or anything like that? Um, and then how do you approach the path of forgiveness? I'll translate your question. A young girl, about a little girl in the class of, uh, at, at, Mary, uh, at, uh, at one of the schools in South Virginia, asked me, do you have hate in your heart? which is essentially what you're asking. I don't. Hate kills you. It hurts you. It doesn't hurt the other person. It only hurts you. So that is a huge mistake. I don't have revenge. I don't have hate. You have to live your own life. And with a situation like that, you cannot hold a specific group responsible the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people involved. And there is no way you can do that. So I learned that way long time ago. I was a young boy, obviously, before that happened. But when I was a young teacher, you don't keep hate in your heart. It doesn't hurt, it doesn't help. It destroys you. So clearly, I don't do that. I don't have that. I think that that it's a good place to end on. Um, strong, positive note. Um, and I think that, you know, everything that both of you said tonight regarding this history and the histories of all of these people who have experienced this, you know, is so important for us to remember. And I think everything that you shared has just given all of us as teachers really valuable resources for us to use in our classroom to be able to tell the right story, you know, and, um, and be able to share and inspire our students to really stand up for the things that matter. Uh, just like Roger has continued to do throughout his life. Um, mm -hmm.